Hi, my name is Hope Roth, and you are listening to The Floating Point on Rave Pubs Radio. The Floating Point is brought to you by the fine folks at Ingram Micro. Ingram Micro, for all of your AV and IT needs. If the podcast is a little extra nice today, it's because our guest is coming from our neighbor to the frozen north, Hal Dazelle, Senior Electronics Technologist at the University of New Brunswick, all the way from Canada. America's hat. Uh, I don't know what else we call it. What else we call you? But uh, America's welcome, Hal. <laughs> America's tooth. Yes. yes. If you're going to incite you. Let's insult you. Let's use the, the correct Canadian. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. I know Hal because he brings me Hawkins cheesies uh, whenever there's a gathering of Crestron programming nerds. Um, but he's also a very smart programmer. So. Oh well, thank you. You flatter me. Oh. <laughs> just 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 trying to be a little canadian oh, i appreciate that i appreciate that uh, so how you work at a university up in uh new brunswick yeah uh province of new brunswick in uh the city of fredericton mm-hmm. uh which is the capital uh, of the province um i've worked here at the university for actually it'll be 17 years this fall that i've been here yeah uh as to how I fell into this line of work, uh, specifically Crestron programming. Um, I guess I'll have to go backwards in time a little bit to give a better uh, overall picture of how I ended up here. But uh, I started off um, right out of high school. I went to a community college in Moncton, which is where uh, I was born and raised, in the city of Moncton, which is in New Brunswick, different city. I got my diploma in uh, electronics engineering technology uh, industrial option. Um, that was back in 1993. I graduated from there with that diploma. It was a two-year program. Uh, by industrial option, basically what that meant, it was tuned or more fine-tuned towards uh, industrial uh, programmable logic controller um, programming for industrial settings uh, where they would manufacture goods uh, so, you know, it would be like the robotic assembly lines you'd see in car plants. That would be a great example of that. So my background right off the bat was one that was a programming logic-based um, uh, specialty. But uh, interestingly enough, when I got out of college, uh, my career uh, pointed me in the direction of broadcasting. Interestingly enough, I got into communications. Um, with sort of just a call literally out of the blue after I graduated. A uh, local TV station was looking for uh, an engineer for the summer for about six months because uh, they were going through some changes and they needed extra personnel. So it's like, sure, why not? Um, I'm not working, I'm looking for something, sure. So I accepted the position, which was only six months. Loved it, I absolutely enjoyed it, uh, learned a lot. And this is back in the days when TV was still analog. It was all analog. It was no digital at the time. Um, so I kind of wet my teeth in that environment. That position was about to end. And then another position at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation here in Fredericton became available. And they contacted me because they've been talking to uh, my supervisors at uh, the station I was at and said, do you know anybody? Because we have a position opening here. And they're like, actually, we do. We know a guy who's going to finish here in a few months and we'd recommend him. So Uh, I applied, uh, went through the interview process. They hired me there. That was in 1994, late 94 or early 95, I think. 
I worked at the CBC uh, for about six years. Uh, I worked my way up to a senior uh, maintenance technician, broadcasting, so TV, radio, uh, studio work. Loved it. I just loved it. Um, but they went through a big round of cuts and layoffs, and I got swept up in that net. Um, so I was back to looking for another job. And when that happened, uh, I saw an ad for a position here at the university for an electronics technician. It was an entry level position in the audiovisual department at the time. This was back in the year 2000. Um, it was a one year term. I'm like, well, it'll give me something to do, you know, while I'm looking for uh, a job in my chosen field, which is broadcasting. Um, well, long story short, I'm still here 17 years later. Uh, it became full time after about 10 months. Um, and then it's the job evolved. It, it really started to evolve quickly from just an entry level bench tech repairing, you know, VCRs and camcorders and audio mixers and all that kind of stuff. Um, it began to evolve quickly into uh, putting technology in classrooms and putting permanent installations in classrooms. And when we started doing that, we started realizing, well, we need control systems for these because, you know, asking a prof to walk in and, and juggle six different IR remote controls is not really an efficient way to do things. So, and of course, you, you understand that and anyone listening understands. So we started uh, you know, going down that road of controls, uh, went through a few different um, scenarios and a few different ways of doing it, including the handheld Pronto. I don't know if you remember that. It was a Philips device, but basically it was a, a handheld LCD screen. Um, you program macros into it and it would spit out uh, IR uh, streams to make everything happen, but that wasn't practical either. So then we found Crestron. Uh, we had a dealer come in. Uh, we, we told them our problems and the challenges we were facing. And I said, well, why don't you try this company, Crestron? And they have all these great things and, and plus they'll switch the audio and video and you can put everything over quick media and it's great, wonderful. I'm like, okay, we'll give it a try. And we've been crushed on ever since, and uh, we're totally we're totally into the matrix now. Nice. Uh, we're fully fully involved with Crestron. Um, I got my certification, uh, my Crestron programming certification. I'm just looking at my diploma here, not diploma, but certificate. Uh, in March of 2010, actually, I got my wow. certification. So, which was a big undertaking. It took me. Well, probably four years of, of work, um, you know, to, to get that. So um, it was definitely a big accomplishment for me and for the university. Uh, and I haven't looked back. And all I do now pretty much is program. That's, That's great. pretty much all I do is program. So <laughs> Loving uh, the dream. I love it. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> love it. It's great. So, and, and plus a lot of designing. I mean, I do a big part of the design work for classroom technology and uh, making recommendations as to what to do and, and how to do it's great I, I really enjoy it so anyway I know that was supposed to be a brief outline and I ended up talking for about 10 minutes but that's all right anyway uh, no I was only five so you're oh, good. five hey, there we go <laughs> um, so I worked at a university as well back in the day I was I was at Tufts University here in the Boston area uh, for about six years um, worked my way up as well from a technician to a, I wasn't even a programmer when I left, just a more senior technician, but I was doing some of the programming. Mm. Um, so, uh, but 17 years is quite, that's impressive. 
it's gone by quickly, though. <laughs> You're a serial monogamous, Hal. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when I, I, it's funny when I tell people, that, oh, well, how long have you been? Oh, I've been there 17 years. I'm like, what? People's workplaces for that long now? Like, they can't believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does happen. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you get the good benefits. You get a lot of holidays, although I know can- – Canadians get more holidays than we get in general, more vacation time. But I, I remember that that was always a big perk. You're off, you gen, generally off of school when your kids are off of school. Mm-hmm. I didn't have kids back then, but I, you know, a lot of my coworkers did. And, uh, you know, it's a re- pretty relaxed working environment. It is. Uh, Every now and then a professor screams at you. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they don't scream at you. How that hasn't happened to me in a few years. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a good roll. There you go. <laughs> but, no, I, I love it. And the thing is to, um, you know, I like to really get my head in the things. Um, and it gives me also the opportunity and time to uh, build on my, my past successes or past achievements. And I can just keep, you know, doing more and more and more and keep leveraging what I do. Um, I, I just like to focus on stuff. And so it's worked out good for me and I do enjoy working here thoroughly. So um, I look forward to it really honestly every day. Um, That's great. And I, and I hope that continues for the remainder of my hopeful career here <laughs> and I might even get to retire here. So who knows? There you go. But I don't, I don't try and look too far ahead. Yeah. I, I found that one of the biggest issues I had working at a university is I, I was actually almost a victim of my own my own success and that I had a big project where I standardized things because when I first started kind of asserting myself, I I guess you could say in the AV department, uh, we had, you know, 20 different types of projector lamps and the key ring, this is an audio podcast, but but Hal can see that my my hands are right around my head of the key ring of all the keys for the, you know, for the different cabinets and everything. And I, I put up together a standards document and I said, look, you need to use this key type. You need to use this projector type because it needs to be this, you know, lamp because we can't keep 50 lamps in stock. Um, And so standardization was great from a service perspective, from a maintenance perspective, from a, you know, a bid perspective. It was a lot of work putting it all together, but it it made the department run better. But then I was only exposed to a few different pieces of equipment because once we had standardized on stuff, then you're not learning about new things. Um, So do you guys have standards? Do you have, or do you just kind of get whatever your integrators throw at you? And how do you... Mm. How do you learn about new stuff uh, in an environment where you tend to have just a smaller range of equipment? Wow. Well, that's, that's a great question, actually, a number of questions. Um, I, I guess as far as standard, standardization, um, we have always tried to standardize to some degree. Um, we more or less try and pick and choose where we standardize on equipment just because there is so much to choose from and there's so many different types of equipment. Um, We've always tried to at the very least standardize, if you want to call it that, uh, on data projectors, for example, just because, and you mentioned the lamp thing, uh, and you nailed it. Um, You don't want to have 10 bazillion different types of lamps in in your cabinet and, and trying to juggle them and then they're sitting there and they're not getting used and there's all that money in inventory. Um, it's better to just have a few different types and you stick with it. It's also better from a service standpoint because you know the strengths and weaknesses of a particular piece of equipment because you're familiar with it. So 
you can more quickly identify problems, fix problems. Um, you, you can establish better relationships with your vendors, um, the dealers and the manufacturer, right? Uh, which gets you quicker service and a quicker turnaround. So we've always tried to standardize to some degree on that part of the equipment. Um, I guess where we haven't always standardized and I mean, <clears throat> I'll certainly take some of the blame for that uh, is more from the programming side of things um, because it all started out kind of organically uh, when the, you know, we went down the road with Crestron and began putting these systems in classrooms. Um, you know, we, we couldn't see 15, 10, 15 years in the future, right? Uh, when we started out with this. And I guess we really didn't uh, envisage just how successful and how um, pervasive um, that control technology would be, uh, not only in all the classrooms, but around the campus, right? And, and I guess if we'd seen ahead in the future, we would have done things a little differently, uh, but we didn't. And that, and, you know, that's fine. That, that's, that's normal. I guess that's the way things evolve. Um, so I guess the bottom line with that is, is you end up with um, not only a bazillion different types of programs for a bazillion different types of classroom designs. Um, you also end up with programming that's kind of unwieldy and clunky, so to speak, because it's difficult to change and it's difficult to um, make modifications to. Um, it's just not standardized and it's not designed in a way that is um, scalable um, or um, easy to modify and, and implement across uh, multiple types of physical installations, right? So you're juggling a lot of stuff um, and you can lose track. It's easy to do that. Um, make mistakes, it's, it's easy to do that. Um, so I think that's where I, I'm seeing and have been seeing the biggest area for improvement here is a better standardized approach to programming uh, and um, implementing it um, across the board uh, all over the campus, right? So mm -hmm. that's what I've been working really hard on the past uh, year or so. And uh, I've totally rewritten uh, everything uh, from the ground up, essentially, for our standard uh, digital media classroom uh, installations, taking full use of the, the three series processors and their capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and moving more towards a centralized approach uh, processor-wise uh, and control-wise for our classrooms. So instead of having an individual processor in each class, we have one central processor that serves an entire area. Mm -hmm. And then each slot, um, uh, each slot actually has a program in it dedicated to each individual classroom. That's great. Um, so, um, and, and of course that whole thing, I mean, that's all an architecture in and of itself. So, oh, yeah. which I built from the ground up. So I've really been busy doing that and documenting it. <laughs> so I've been busy documenting. I know. Documents Heaven forbid. I know. I know. I've really gone over to the dark side. I oh, know. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, if it makes you feel any better, Hal, uh, having done residential and commercial programming now and a lot of takeovers of other people's code nobody else standardizes anything either and then pe even people who standardize everyone writes unwieldy code so it's not just you oh and i, I know and i realize that and that and that's one of the 
things, you know, with the crush on programming is it's so, um, it, it's a blank slate. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it, they, give it's you very, enough, they give you enough rope to hang yourself. Right. Exactly. And, and potentially multiple times if you like. Yeah. I mean, you know. there's just so many different ways that you can mess something up. There's many different yeah. ways you can make something beautiful too, but. Of course, yeah. of course. And uh, that's one of the biggest uh, hurdles and the biggest challenges that I've, I've realized um, is that fact that I have, I always try and think to myself, you know, if I got run over by a bus tomorrow mm -hmm. um, and some poor sot has to come in here and sort out what on earth I've done with this programming, um, I pity them. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I'm going to try and do everything I can uh, to make their job a little easier um, and save a lot of frustration because, you know, we're so, we're so far into the, um, the way we're doing things and we've invested so much money um, and, and so many resources uh, into it hardware wise, especially mm -hmm. um, across campus that, you know, we really can't just say, Oh, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We've really got to stick with it. And it has to be done in a way that someone else, if they really have to can step into my place and um, keep it going because we've just put so much work and thought and time into it. We don't, I don't want to see it go out the window. Um, yeah. And it's, and it has, it's having great benefits and positive impacts and uh, I'm seeing it more and more. And, and as I evolve it um, and keep improving it, um, we keep seeing benefits uh, for, for us, uh, for students, for the faculty and the university as a whole. So, um, you know, I don't want to see all that effort uh, be for naught, you know, just yeah. because something happens to me. Right. Um, Anyway, so we're, we're, we're attacking it from multiple directions, but I, I think the long-term goal is to just have something that's um, fairly easy to maintain, that's quick and modular, it's easily scalable, uh, easy to configure, um, and, uh, and it's well-documented, and we have clear processes on how we do things. So that, that's what I'm working towards, and uh, I'm getting there bit by bit. <laughs> I think that's everybody's dream, <laughs> no, matter yeah. what, no matter where they work. <laughs> to have something good that they can start from a good, yeah, good framework. Um, yeah. 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 When you start from, a, when you start from an actual framework and a, and something that's a standard, I, I think, I think it, it, sometimes you get yourself stuck into a corner, but for the most part, if it's a, if you're, if you've thought through all the different possibilities, I think it for the most part helps. One of the, one of the, so are you guys, you guys do all your own code in house? Yes. And then how about your touch panels? Are you doing all your touch? Do you have a standard design for that? I'm working on it. Working on it. <laughs> um, it. It's more or less standard. It has a look. Yeah. Um, but again, uh, I do all the touch panel designs as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we do 100% uh, all the programming and touch panel design and creation right here mm -hmm. um, where I sit in this chair. Um, it all comes out of here. Um, and we basically just we're, we're, we're a supplier's worst nightmare because all we do is is quote hardware and uh, look for the lowest price we can get, you know, <laughs> and because we do it, we, we add all the value here. Right. Yeah. Um, and whereas, you know, other, other AV departments, um, probably not so much. And, and I think too, um, I think we're very unique actually uh, with the way we're doing things here at the university, um, not only in the region, but I think even across the board because, um, the trend that I've been seeing and, I, and it's been happening for quite some time and I'm sure you've seen it as well um, is that the AV departments have been 
slowly but surely and systematically being absorbed into uh, IT departments, right? Oh, yeah. Um, big time. And, um, you know, that, that has its own, I guess, advantages and disadvantages. But I, I think one of the bigger disadvantages, of course, is that you do tend to lose a lot of the experience and people uh, that, uh, you know, got, got the AV departments to where they were mm-hmm. at whatever point. Um, and it becomes more in the realm of IT. And, you know, I guess that's okay from an efficiency standpoint, but you also lose something too, I think, when you do that. Um, because just because a, a network jack plugs into it, doesn't mean that it's a pure IT device, you know, and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that um, that's all there is to it. And I know that with Crestron now, it's very network dependent. Um, you know, they are full network appliances now, uh, which is great, but that also brings its own disadvantages too. But I think here, you know, what we've done, and I don't think it was through any conscious effort to uh, go against the trend. I think it just worked out this way and, and we hung on and we stayed, but I think it's going to pay big dividends um, moving forward that we have kind of not kept up with the times in that regard. We, we, we've stayed separate from mm-hmm. the IT department here. Uh, we've grown, we've flourished. Um, we're doing really cool, innovative things. And uh, I think that's going to, at the end of the day, end up being a strength. And I think it's going to be something that, other universities, I hope, will look at and maybe reconsider, um, you know, the decisions to scale back and cut back and, um, you know, absorb their AV departments like that, because I I think it sells it short, because there's more to it than just buying stuff. Yeah, definitely. There really is. And there's a lot of knowledge and experience, training um, that goes into a well-seasoned audiovisual technician and especially someone that can also do programming right it's a unique skill set mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of knowledge there. there's a lot of things to understand about audio and video um, as well so there's a lot of facets to it and um, you know I think a lot of universities may be selling themselves short if, if they don't give that I think the respect that it deserves because it brings a lot of added value to the university and the students and the experience that they can have um, anyway, and that, that, that's just the way I look at it. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big proponent that we're all technologists and that IT and AV are technology and you kind of have to see it as a bigger umbrella. You can't just say, well, we're not IT, we're AV. But even within the IT realm, you know, you have people who are VMware experts and you have people sure. who are, uh, you know, Microsoft experts and you have people that are security experts. So AV is still an area of expertise within this sort of bigger umbrella of technology. And I think people forget that sometimes. Absolutely. And I, I know a big trend is also just to say, uh, you know, there's no help desk in AV tech. You're all the same person, but maybe you're a subject matter expert. And the, and it, that I think cuts both ways too, because, um, knowing a lot of IT people in my life being married to an IT guy, they don't want to deal with our stuff. Like Mm. HTCP, the screen goes green. Like what is going on? Like you just fix it. Right. Yeah. Um, So, and then like, uh, you know, AV people don't want to be installing software updates or, you know, cleaning viruses. So, you know, let let people work to their strengths. And I think it's the detriment of a department. If you kind of just try to say, well, everyone's just sort of a help desk technician because yeah, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, that, that's so very true. 
Um, and, and two with AV, I find it's also, it's a very, um, customer oriented, um, way of doing things. You know, you're very much, we want to help yeah. kind of attitude and, uh, you know, everybody will generally bend over backwards to try and help someone that has a problem mm -hmm. and they won't give up, uh, until they solve it for them. Right. And get them on their merry way. So uh, I find there is to, uh, a, a sort of a bit of a different attitude towards customer service, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, you know, on the AV side. So, yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of value-added things to be had um, with an AV department, I think. And um, I think one of the most important things, though, um, from an educational higher ed standpoint, uh, at least for me, in any case, uh, because of the network reliance now um, that you know, the equipment we use has, especially with the Crestron processors and streaming devices and the receiver, I mean, you name it, it's all a network appliance. Um, you need to have a really good working relationship with your networking department that's on campus uh, because it's enterprise, right? You're working in an enterprise situation. It's not a home network that you just stuck, stick things on and, and it works um, sometimes. Uh, Sometimes more than not, but here especially, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of bugaboos, and there's a lot of ways you can um, cause problems, and there's a lot of ways that things cannot work, uh, and you have to really um, you have to really have a good close relationship with the people there, and make sure they understand your needs very well, um, and you have to make sure to have your needs known, um, and have that working relationship because otherwise there's going to be problems. Stuff is not going to work. Or when there is a problem and, you know, class is starting in 15 minutes, um, you need somebody you can talk to and not just, you know, put in a ticket and wait. You know, it's sort of like live TV. you got to have support immediately and get something working. So you really have to have a good working relationship with your networking and IT department. And I think it helps a lot, too, to have a really good knowledge yourself of IT and networking as well. Uh, so it works both ways, you know, um, that the AV side uh, has to really um, be on the ball with the prog uh, not programming, with the networking uh, aspect of uh, IT because it's just so pervasive now. It's everywhere, right? And it's only getting more and more that way. So that's very critical. I think it's extremely critical to have that because if the network doesn't work, your stuff doesn't work. Yeah. Right? It's... I... I just about the mission critical part, I, one of the things that I remember just astounding me when I worked in higher ed was professor sending us an email saying, you know, your projector didn't work, so I had to cancel class. <laughs> <laughs> and, part, and part of me is like, well, I'm, I'm glad that they see what I, what I see as a value add as a critical part of teaching because I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up in in an era where there weren't things like smart boards, which they have in, you know, elementary school classrooms now. Right. But I'm like, you know, there's a, there's a perfectly functioning whiteboard in your classroom. And if you're not showing a video, then you should be able to just reference your notes and teach, you know, so, so part of you, part of you wants yeah. to say, stop being ridiculous. You can, you can teach a class without PowerPoint. It's okay. And then part of you is like, well, I'm glad that they see me as being mission critical. Um, do you find, do you find that people, have issue when you know when systems go down or is there a sense of perspective with the faculty that you're dealing with or yeah. are your systems just so bulletproof that you don't have that issue 
<laughs> oh well, I'd love I'd love to say yes to the latter. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on it, yeah. um, but uh, it, it's 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 a fairly good balance. I mean, really, there's only a certain number of classes that are truly dependent on the technology functioning. Um, you know, for example, if it's a movie class or or a class where they're studying movies yeah um obviously you've got to have your av system uh, functioning well um there's other classes we have here on campus where they actually uh live stream um the professor over camera feed and they also uh send over um uh data and you know a computer whatever av source to another spillover auditorium because the class is so big they can't fit them all in one auditorium. Yep. So there are situations like that where the technology has to work because if it doesn't, then nobody can see. Of, right. Uh, any students at the far end uh, on the spillover class, they're not going to have a class. So there's definitely situations like that where the technology is mission critical, and if it doesn't work, your class is basically up in up in flames. Um, but you're right. There's also the classes that maybe they're just showing a, a PowerPoint uh, slide of what used to be something they had on an acetate sheet on an overhead, you know, 10 years ago, right? Um, that may not necessarily be critical and they can continue. Um, and quite often, you know, the, the technology won't work. There'll be a problem with the projector. They'll do their class. They won't even hear from them until a day or two later. Oh, by the way, uh, the projector didn't work in this certain class and uh, you know they'll they'll go through the channels they'll let us know and we'll, we'll get it fixed and uh, we don't hear too many complaints so you know really it seems to balance out um, we, we hear from people immediately if it is a truly serious situation like you know the spillover class for example um, and if it's a class where it's meh um, you know they, they'll just do their class and they'll get back to us whenever so it seems to be a pretty good balance. You know, we don't find a lot of people panicking because they can't display whatever on the screen, right? Um, and I think people have a good perspective. They seem to, um, as to the role of technology, but it, it's still nice to have, you know, you still, you want to rely on it and you want it to be reliable. You want people to feel confident that when they put a power button on the button panel, um, stuff's going to happen, right? Yep. And and that's what we try and Beep, boop, boop, boop. That is the sound of the podcast doing a little uh, record scratch as irony hits. Right as we were talking about network being mission critical, Hal lost his Wi-Fi. But he's back here with us. I hit pause. We're resuming. And I think that just goes to show you that even when the network down, even when the network goes down, you, you know, you have a backup. He, he tethered his phone. We got right back in the disruption in service was pretty negligible. So yeah, that, that just highlights the importance of a backup. Yeah. Being able to think on your feet. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, I, I used to actually give all the trainings uh, when I worked at, at university. Um, and it, it always seemed like, you know, we would do classroom checks at the end of the summer, right before everyone came back, try and find out any problems, hit all the buttons, make sure everything worked. But it seemed like, you know, if any part was going to fail, it always seemed to fail right in the middle of the training when you had like 17 people all standing there. And I would just say, okay, well, now we're going to show you uh, what to do when the system goes down. Let me show you on the documentation where our phone number is. This is who you call. I'm the one that's going to come and help you. Uh, and uh, you 
just keep going. You fix stuff. You get yeah, it. yeah, because we, we planned for this to fail. This was just part of the demonstration, but yeah. it's never going to stop working in a class, we promise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. don't piss off your network guys. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I did. Maybe they were like, oh, he's saying stuff about the network. Blurp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling it was probably some maintenance on the network because it is Sunday morning, so yeah. Could very well be it but uh anyway yes i'm back you're back well you know and that's the other thing is that nobody plans you you, you do need to have that downtime yeah yeah, yeah which exactly. is hard at a university especially when the you know the classes classes go into the night oh yeah There's all through free, the day you know we would always try and have some time during the summer when we could do upgrades and checks and everything but it seemed like we were always getting squeezed so yeah, it just goes to show you there's never a good time to do network maintenance. No, <laughs> not, a, not anymore. Not anymore when this stuff is being used 24 Oh, it is. It's, it's so reliant. Everything is so reliant on it, you know, um, especially, I say, with the crest jar now. Although, the, um, what do they call it? The control subnet. Now, that's a great, that's a great development. Um, and that certainly uh, adds a little bit of extra bulletproofness to the systems, I find, anyway. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, with uh, especially now we can get the three series processors with that extra control subnet, and then we can just hang everything off of that um, that it has yeah. to talk to. So it's almost like um, a network implementation of CrestNet, if you yeah. like. Yeah, it's, no, and and I feel it's really important to keep things self-contained. I actually was uh, I did a commercial lighting startup at another university up in Canada, and the electricians pulled the CrestNet to the wrong panel. Um, you know, they had, they had some aux sensors and keypads for lighting and they didn't pull them to the lighting uh, panel. They pulled them to the AV panel mm. and, they're, and they're saying, well, you can just talk IP to the AV system. Uh, problem solved. And I said, no, no, we need to make this self-contained. The whole point of Kresnet is it's, you know, it's a low voltage mm -hmm. system that'll, that'll still keep working if the building network goes down. Uh, pe they, people need to be able to control the lights, even if there's a network outage, uh, move, move the cable. Yeah. They weren't super happy about it, but they moved it. And um, Yeah. Oh, there's, there's definitely something to be said uh, for a proprietary closed loop um, communication network like that for control. Um, but its advantages are also some of its disadvantages too, right? Because um, it's not over a network and it's unwieldy and it's specialized. So, um, and it'll tend to be a slower speed. So, um, I can understand, you know, uh, everything going towards the network side. I think it makes sense, but it has to be done and implemented in a way um, that you don't put all your eggs in one basket um, yeah. because you don't want all your classrooms to stop working just because the network goes down. You know, it really seems counterintuitive, um, you know, from my standpoint as a technician to, to think that everything can go down if the network stops working right yeah. um it just it's just too i don't like doing that um so you got to have a backup plan and you got to have other ways of doing things that give you a little bit more robustness um and that things will still work even if the network um decides to pooch or whatever things happen right yeah. no and i think that one of the things that that a good programmer learns with experience is you know what can we have be on you know a network-based thing that makes things more convenient in the long run versus what do we have to make sure is self-contained and is more bulletproof because 
you know, this always needs to work. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, so a lot of what I do is time clock based and to have, you know, eight different time clocks cause you've got eight different lining processors or processors, I guess I should say mm. just for you, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, would be unwieldy to go in and change the schedule for eight different, you know, to, to change the schedule in eight different places when, you know, it's summer hours or something like that. Yeah. Um, versus you know a keypad always needs to talk to the system that it's um controlling for the most that's right that's right so so what you you know what you do is you 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 can have the time clock be ip based have it be something that you're doing from a configuration file uh manage it centrally um, Mm -hmm. and then you should probably have some sort of check in there that if that connection goes down somebody notices you know i i did a um I did a service call in a university that will not be named and, and they're saying, well, the lights in that building never worked. And it's because somebody set up the IP settings incorrectly and it must've worked enough for the person who did the initial startup to say, yep, everything works and leaves. And then, or, and then they left and then mm-hmm. you know, the sort of networking checks sort of, you know, they probably give you a grace period when you're on their, their network. And then it, uh, um, yeah, it, it said ex- I... it expired, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. there's two processors: one that's doing the top half of the building, and one that's doing the bottom half of the building. They're not talking to each other, and nobody noticed for six months, except they said the lights in that building never worked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so yeah. I went in. I realized they weren't talking to each other, and I uh, worked with the networking guys, got them back up and running, and it worked. And you know, and part of the problem was one one building was the time clock or one processor was the time clock. The other one wasn't. And there were certain things, you know, it locked out the keypads during the day. Mm. I think it's actually a code violation, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, Uh, And so, but it thought it was daytime. It it thought it was Alaska in July. It was always daytime because they (laughs) they weren't talking. And so the keypads never worked, but then there were some internal stuff that turned the lights off. So the, so the lights turn off, but then the keypads are locked out and you can't turn them back on. And oh, no. That was not one of ours. I don't know who wrote that program, but wow. somebody yeah. should smack them on the wrist for that one um, because yeah. uh, you should never be in a situation where one system can lock you out and a different system can shut your lights off. It, it, it all needs to come from the same place so that somebody knows what's wrong and fixes it and you don't get into a situation where people are literally sitting in the dark. Exactly. And that, that just gets right back to standardizing and centralizing and making things efficient, right? Because yeah. yeah. you've got all these separate processes that depend on each other. It's, it kind of becomes the programmatic equivalent of a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it happens very quickly and, and things cascade and all of a sudden you've got big problems. So yeah. one, marble, yeah. one marble falls off in the wrong spot and it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and one of the things you mentioned briefly there too, you touched on configuration files. That's um, one of the things that I've been doing with this new programming architecture that I've been working on. Um, it's all uh, configurable with a text file. Mm-hmm. So I, I feed, I, I basically drop the, the text file onto the processor in the appropriate folder, read the file and boom, um, the room is completely configured in all aspects that we require uh, with just one click. Um, and anybody can write the text file, you know, it's all documented and, uh, what? You know, oh, I know, here I go again. What's wrong with me? Crazy. I am crazy. Um, so yeah, so it's really going to simplify things a lot and make it a lot easier to 
to, to configure and, and add rooms. It's, it's definitely, it's a smarter way to do it, you know, and I've been saying that I can't work any harder really, but we can work smarter, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what we have to do, um, especially since we don't have a lot of resources as far as people go. Um, yeah. We're limited and we're not getting any more people. So uh, we just have to work more efficiently um, and smartly and make the most of what we do have um, and make it go further. So that, that, that's what I've been working towards and I'm going to keep working towards that, you know, as time progresses. So yeah. that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been a great uh, conversation, a little bit of a walk down memory lane for me. Um, we always end our podcast with sort of a more lighthearted question. Um, so we'll do a higher ed one uh, today. Um, and my, my question for you, and I'll go first uh, in the interest of fairness, is um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the joys of working in higher ed is that you often have to walk into a classroom if something has broken and, you know, and maybe they have used the blackboard or the whiteboard and, but they, you know, they have, they have some graphs that they want to show and so they need to get PowerPoint back up and so you go in to fix it. Uh, half the time it always seemed like I fixed the problem by hitting all F9 on their laptop and then they, <laughs> they would say, Sometimes they would be like wizard and then sometimes they would be mad that you fixed it so quickly that it was clearly not broken. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like you kind of made me look bad in front of my class. I'm like, well, we offer you training every year and if nobody ever shows up to the training, but if you did, I would tell you all F9 about five times you would remember it. Um, but um, what's the most sort of awkward situation you've ever found where you're in front of a class? And I would say that mine would be, I, I walked in, I very quickly fixed something. I don't even remember if it was really broken, but we got them up and running and the professor had everybody um, applaud for me, which, <laughs> which was, you know, it's nicer than being yelled at because I've had experiences where they yell at you in front of the class. And so it was a, it was a much kinder gesture, but it was also a little embarrassing. Oh my. <laughs> I, I can't say I've ever uh, I've ever been yelled at in front of a class oh, by a prof. So thank goodness um, I haven't had to experience that. Um, as far as an embarrassing experience in that regard, I can't say I've really had any experience um, of that sort. Really, honestly, um, I, I don't tend to do a lot of the direct classroom service calls now uh, mm -hmm. anymore. Uh, but I did that a lot at the beginning, of course. I know and I can recall of going into, you know, packed auditoriums where, um, you know, they're all patiently waiting for me to show up to, like you say, get the professor's laptop perhaps showing on the screen and they can't figure it out. Um, and I have done just exactly what you said, press the Alt F9 key or so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I feel, <laughs> I know they feel terrible um, when I show them how simple the answer was and I know they're embarrassed and I just try and make them, you know, feel comfortable about it and say, look, that's all right. You know, now, you know, and it's not a problem and I can just see the students there. They're kind of embarrassed and, you know, you can hear them, feel them laughing and, you know, they get, and I just, I just want to get out of here and get back to my shop and get back programming, <laughs> you know, um, but no, I've not ever actually been in any really embarrassing situations like that. Um, and now that uh, I don't tend to do a whole lot of uh, direct service calls, um, hopefully I, I'll, I'll get to avoid anything terribly embarrassing <laughs> moving forward. Um, 
I do tend to make the odd mistake, you know, programming and, and those, those are embarrassing because yeah. um, those can have a much bigger impact um, depending on the mistake I made. But I try and keep those to an absolute minimum, but I'm sure we've all, we've all uploaded the wrong panel interface or in a hurry uploaded the wrong uh, program to the wrong processor. And then you get calls, well, why isn't it working? And there's a problem. And then you're like, ah, uh, <laughs> to me, to me, that's very embarrassing. You know, yeah. that's very embarrassing. Probably shouldn't have rebooted that at two o'clock on a Tuesday. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Won't happen again. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I guess uh, that's pretty, uh, I guess that was a non-answer, wasn't it? That's all right. That's all right. I'll, I'll forgive you for it. For it. This, this I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you, Hal, for joining us. Um, oh, no problem. And, uh, and taking time on a weekend to come in and chat about this stuff um, and do some, some network strength testing of uh, your campus Wi-Fi. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I broke uh, the internet. <laughs> I know. This podcast was just so great. I broke the internet. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at Masters this year. I know invites just went out. Yes, I saw that. I hope. Um, hard to say. But uh, if I don't make it, uh, rest assured, uh, you'll have a care package of Hawkins Cheesies uh, delivered uh safely and soundly to wherever you choose so oh, i will best. not leave you stranded <laughs> i have a cheesy habit now <laughs> <laughs> um well thank you very much and uh hopefully we'll talk soon uh you have been listening to the floating point on rave pubs radio thanks and see you soon okay thank you